And we are live. Welcome to the podcast for the Low Seaters, episode 727 for today, Friday, the 25th of August, 2023. I am your host, Connor, joined again by Stelios. Hello again. Yeah, I know you're stuck with me a few days in the running. Don't worry, most of the other hosts are off, but they'll be back next week, so you get a break from my droning voice. But we're going to have some fun with the topics today. We're going to discuss why Bill Maher explains how liberalism is brain rot. I can feel Stelios's glowing laser eyes bearing into the side of my head, uh, why Jordan Peterson shouldn't back down, and why the new demographic nightmare has just dropped by the ONS in the UK. It's going to be a, a really cheery last segment, that one, but we're going to try and propose some solutions. Before we jump into today's news items, we have two things on the docket. First of all, at 3.30 UK time today, we have the gold tier Zoom call where there will be possibly four of us. So you're going to get a, a full house of the lads hour. So if you are a gold tier subscriber, you can come in, you can queue up, you can ask us questions and yell at us for whatever we've upset you with this month. Or if you're not, then you've still got time to sign up and, and jump in. So 3.30. And then just from the top of the hour, I thought we'd discuss this, and that is Donald Trump's mugshot. Now, just a little bit of a segment on this, because yesterday I covered the Trump indictments in full, but the implications of this are, are pretty mad. First of all, this was Donald Trump's first tweet back on X, Twitter, whatever we're calling it nowadays. And I wanted to mention the fact that when I went over to Washington recently, I went to the portrait gallery. And they've got an exhibition that's pretty permanent with all of the presidential portraits that each person gets painted. Donald Trump never had his presidential portrait painted. So I think this is going to have an extra historical dimension, not just because he's the first US president to ever be imprisoned. Uh, obviously, he posted bail, so he's not sitting in jail, but he's got his mugshot there. Very intense look, really exudes vengeance, but also because... Laser eyes into it. Yeah, I'm sure there's been an edit of that. Also because I guarantee you this is going to be in the National Portrait Gallery, no matter what happens with the 2024 election. They're, they're probably going to have either his existing photo and a little one alongside this, or... If he wins again, he's going to have a proper portrait painted and probably this alongside it for historical posterity. Or wouldn't it be amazing if this was the only photo that was in the portrait gallery? I mean, it, it would. It would yeah, be great. Let's see what happens. Yeah, so, so I think here, and this is my prediction, that this was a regime blunder because so far I think the Democrat Party apparatchiks, the Uniparty really, because the rhinos have enabled them, particularly in Georgia with, with Brad Raffensperger, but they didn't want this photo to exist because the previous indictments didn't require him to have a mugshot, especially not where he showed up in New York, because Alvin Bragg said he didn't want a mugshot. And I think that the dumbest of their diversity hires, DAs, has allowed her ambition to exceed her competency here, and she's let him take this photo. And this photo is the single best thing for Trump in this campaign, because now he is vindicated in his assertion that he is being arbitrarily persecuted by a partisan justice system that doesn't cut both ways for Biden and <clears throat> And so the fact that this exists, the fact that this can be on t-shirts, brilliant win for the 2024 campaign. And I, I, I wonder if, partially, the regime still wants him to be the Pied Piper candidate that Hillary tried to prop him up as in 2016, much to her own tragic fall, of course. But I, I do think this is a miscalculation by the regime rather than a 4D chess move. And, and I'm glad it's happened because this now has a million likes, and it is a hell of a photo. So just thought we'd give that quick mention before we jump into today's proper segment. So without further ado, right, so Jordan Peterson was recently a guest on Bill Maher's Club Random, his podcast where he sits in a Technicolor basement smoking weed and talking about how bad Trump is. This was a, a few weeks ago now, and the discussion between the two demonstrated why I think liberalism is a form of brain rot. Okay. 
Let me hear. I know. And, and, and so I'm really glad that you set in on this one, not just because it's Friday, we're going to have a bit of fun, but of course, you are our long-suffering defender of classical liberalism in the office. Political liberalism, not social liberalism. And so I'm sure you're going to be able to elucidate the distinctions and probably try and defend the tradition a little bit from what it has metastasized into. And speaking of which, before we jump into today's segment, if you'd like to go over to our website, check out all of our premium content. These are our Rumble live streams. Now, they're exclusive for a certain amount of time, but they are streamed to Rumble first. We take super chat questions from our audience. And this isn't behind the paywall. It is free. But of course, with as little as £5 a month, you can get all of our premium content. I'll be mentioning more of the premium content that particularly you have done with Carl recently throughout the podcast. This one was on James Lindsay's conception of liberalism. It was a sequel to our discussion of Christian nationalism. We only did two because we ran over time in the first one because the discussion was so rich between myself and Harry. Harry spearheaded this one with James Lindsay's conception of liberalism and how actually the complacent of liberalism, social liberalism in particular, has led to the fertile soil from which woke has sprung. They're not disconnected. There's actually a continuity between the two. And I think Bill Maher actually shows that off. So this was the Club Random episode, and you can go and watch the full thing in your own time. What I've done here is I've clipped a few sections. So the first clip I wanted to go to, um, Bill Maher insists dogmatically that wokeness and liberalism, and this is American liberalism, have nothing to do with each other. So let's play the first one. Jack, we go to the first clip, please. Except when do you think the left goes too far? May I use my lifeline? Yeah, absolutely, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Call the people who know. Who know. Okay. Um, what, I mean, you mean they haven't already? Well, I mean, but how do you know? Like, how, what, how, what's a when Trump gets reelected, that's when you know. What would you regard as behavior on the left that's unacceptable from the perspective of someone who's essentially liberal? How long have you got? I mean, the theme I've been trying to promulgate as much as I can the last five years, partly just in self-defense of people who say, say, I've changed, I have not, is that wokeness is not something that expands on liberalism. It's something that undoes it. And I think you are on the same page generally. I mean, uh, to give a few examples, colorblindness, wanting to have a colorblind society where we don't see race was is classic liberalism, certainly what Obama was uh, going for. That's not wokeism. Wokeism is races front and center to everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's part of that. That so, so that to me, that's an extension of the insistence that someone's primary identity is 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 right. signified by their group. Right. Whatever, which is, which again, this is exactly what old school liberals were fighting against. Don't characterize somebody by that. <laughs> okay. So they completely inverted, and then they get mad at us for somehow we're conservatives? No, no, we're not conservatives. You're just not what liberals are. You're doing a different thing, which is fine. We're all allowed to do our thing, but you can't do this whole different thing and then take the term that used to apply, but doesn't apply anymore. I mean, there's many colleges that have segregated dorms. Mm -hmm. Okay, again, you do- And graduation service. Yes, you do you, but this is not liberalism, okay? Um, and certainly in the realm of gender, I mean, that's, I, I mean, Liberalism is always about tolerance for let's celebrate and allow everyone to be protected and respected for who they are. That includes homosexuality. That includes trans, which, of course, is a real thing that happens. That's different than rewriting the <laughs> anatomy book from page one so that every kid who comes out, it's a jump ball. And there's no such thing as sex. It's only gender. And again, this is something different. It's not liberalism. So you can't say, oh, you don't believe in that. You're not a liberal. So during this conversation, he keeps bringing up Trump. He brought up Trump in there as the only example of when the left goes too far. So his example of when the left goes too far, as you can see, was when liberalism loses, it's shown to go too far. 
which implies that there's not too much of an overreach that yeah. his version of liberalism can do. Uh, he then also later on talks about how he studied the Bible in college, but quote, he knew he was going to become a comedian, so he barely paid attention. And he doesn't understand how Peterson, quote, sees all the lessons in this, and he just read it as some stupid effing stories from the Bronze Age. So it seems that his version of liberalism is very disconnected from the Christian tradition that gave birth to it in America, particularly. But what did you think about what he said there? Do you think liberalism has any connection to wokeness? So I think it will surprise you now. Go on. I'm ready, Stelios. I'm bracing myself. Let me start with something with a very negative comment. Is it about his shirt? It's It's really ugly. Bill Maher. I'm just saying, I just never understood what's the what's the magic of him. Why? I just, because I just don't find him funny. He, he also, dresses up lots of his statements in this sort of smarmy sarcasm, and so it makes midwits feel really superior. Yeah, but sometimes this is exactly what it does, yep. and uh, it doesn't look bad. It doesn't age well. So I saw a clip of his some time ago with Dennis Prager. Yes, uh, I think it was 2019, yes. and he was. He was uh, acting in a very weird way. Well, because he was talking. He was acting and talking as if, you know, Dennis Prager is is a fool and an idiot. And he's not. But the whole way he was acting was incredibly performative. And it was was clear that he was acting like a sophist there. Now, occasionally, he may have said a thing or two. I I agree with him. But, you know, I don't, to be honest, I don't remember, remember. It's just that I agree. I remember that I never, I, I didn't disagree with everything he said uh, in the past. Now, let me say, let me say something good. I think that uh, you said something really good in the beginning and how you phrased the discussion, which after your se- after your first sentence, because the first sentence was how liberalism is brain rot, but then you started qualifying, mm-hmm. and I don't think that there is anything wrong with qualifying. And actually, I think. You qualified quite well. There is a distinction between classical liberalism, social liberalism, you know, all kinds of liberalisms. And basically, it is really good to show that they, there are distinct versions. And actually, these are umbrella terms. It's very easy to basically take one view, like conservatism with capital C and attack it wholesale, or liberalism with capital L and attack it wholesale. But that's not productive. And there's a reason for that, because a lot of the times when people criticize views, they want to stand out in the crowd, and they want, for instance, their criticisms to, to appear incredibly radical. And one of the ways in which they do it is take one of the values the other side claims to have, such as, for instance, liberty on the one hand, or community on the other hand, and just try to attack it completely, say that it is not a value. So when people attack liberalism with a capital L, I think that they are having a problem that any kind of solution that they're going to offer will not include liberalism as a liberty as a very important political value. See, I disagree. And I I don't think liberalism... Uh, Let let me just finish my point and, and, and hear you. So I think that, for instance, if... Right now, there, there must be there must be an alliance between classical liberals and conservatives. I deeply believe that. Okay? But if, for instance, each person from each side tries to completely dismiss the other view, they are going to end up with really bad suggestions because the, their values are going to be very one-sided. For instance, right now, 
extreme liberty is bad. It's license. It's anarchy. It leads to the disintegration of societies and communities. It leads to what is called actually, what is actually what we're talking about, the atomized individual. On the other hand, an extreme focus on community would lead us to a kind of collectivism and the extreme rejection of individualism. And I think there needs to be a marriage of, the, of these two. And w in order for us to do this, I think we need to be a bit more uh, careful and do what you did to qualify. And instead of saying I'm attacking conservatism or I'm attacking liberalism or I'm attacking any other view with a capital front letter, we say, okay, let us see what are the fundamental values that each of them advocate and let us see whether these values are really important values that we want to uphold and whether actually society can survive without them because society cannot survive without a focus on community or also a focus on liberty, the way I see it. Right, okay. So I am going to attack liberalism with a capital L. Absolutely. And the reason is, one, it doesn't have monopoly on liberty. But two, I think Bill Maher over the course of this conversation and in here demonstrates how you cannot distinguish, particularly with the evolution of these doctrines and their common precepts, political liberalism from social liberalism. I think they have a, an evolution here. I think liberalism has a tendency to liquidate social bonds because political liberalism is a framework without a normative ethic. That's why liberalism and Christianity are compatible. But without Christianity, liberalism evolves into social liberalism because if you can't quantify what the good life is under liberalism, all you can just say is we need a system of political checks and balances so the state doesn't become that communitarian collective tyranny, then if you, if you look for an affirmative value system, then because it can't say what you should do, all it says is what things are getting in the way of what you want to do. So it becomes an, uh, an eternal crusade of liquidating any kind of constraint that seems to be an imposition on individual liberty. Or, at the very best, you get people like Bill Maher, who are these complacent liberals, and who say, well, that's not liberal. The civil rights movement was about individuality, despite the fact that MLK cavorted with and was funded entirely by communists and wanted affirmative action. But we'll, we'll gloss over that anyway. What you get then is a blindness to the movements that are using your liberal precepts to undermine your civilization. This is why when he says, oh, Obama was for individuality. N no, he wasn't. He was, he was fully on board. As, as, a, as a leftist lawyer, so he would have been familiar with critical race theory, with things like affirmative action. One, he was fully on board with group-based identity. That's why he said, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon Martin, giving legitimacy to the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I actually share Schmidt, and I know you don't like Schmidt, but his criticism of liberalism, where the, the value neutrality of liberalism is the cover of night by which subversive forces can enter your civilization, like critical race theory, and use your own values against you, like freedom, liberty, equality, um, material abundance, and subvert your values. And then you, you stand around going, well, what happened? I, I thought the left used to stand for free speech and anti-racism. No, no, no. They were always against you. They were just using you as a useful puppet. That's my concern. Okay. I have, you raise a lot of uh, excellent points. Mm -hmm. And I will surprise you again. First, first point. You said that uh, liberalism does not have the monopoly on liberty. I fully agree with you. In fact, I have symposium number two that I did with Bo, Conceptions of Political Freedom, where we are actually talking about this. Mm. Now, um, and we are saying that, for instance, there are many traditions. We are talking about three traditions. One is the negative one, which is the kind of liberty that classical liberals are mostly talking about. The other is the positive one, and the other is the republican one. And at the end of the day, we are saying none of them in isolation works. We need to fuse both of them. So if what you're saying is that classical liberalism does not have a monopoly on liberty, 
uh, in that sense, then we're in full agreement. What I would try to say is that in attacking classical liberalism with a capital L, or liberalism, as you said, with a capital L, we are very likely to miss the importance of negative liberty, which is freedom from government interference and also by the deliberate interference of other people. Because at the end of the day, the point is that what, what classical liberals want to a very large extent is for the government to not tell us what we want, what we are to do. Now, maybe you are really happy with that idea. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying um, I think Bill Maher goes on to explain why, why that's not the case. Wait, but... uh, now, uh, when it comes to the, the religious connection you said between yes. classical liberalism and a lot of and Christian values, Yes, I think that there is such a connection, and the connection is not so much conceptual as much as historical. So yes, when we live in societies where people, for instance, um, become nihilists, and I don't mean necessarily atheists, but nihilists with respect to value in general, that is a very big problem for everything. But let me go back to a thing, to a thing you said before. Um, there are ways in which liberalism and people who espouse liberal ideals can be led into, into wokeness. There can be. And let me just mention two. But before I mention them, I want to say that this is much more an issue of rhetoric and, and judgment. As much, that, that is foremost, which means that the slide is not particularly a problem for classical liberalism. It's a problem for every ideology. Why? Because words change. And he said something unbelievably wrong. He said, this term does not apply anymore. No, actually, if you, are, if, if you have read any conservative literature, you will know that history matters. To a very large extent, we're historical beings. To understand ourselves, we need to understand our society and our history. So it just doesn't apply when he says that the term does not apply anymore. That's just, that's just a wrong way to view it. But let me just say one thing. I'll give you two ways in which uh, this can disintegrate, in, in which liberalism can disintegrate into wokeness. And it has to do with, for instance, how we understand concepts. One is the concept of harm. Now, in the classical period of liberalism, there were people who were saying, for instance, that harm is just physical harm. Then at some point with Mill, people started saying that there is such a thing as psychological harm. And I think we both agree that there, that there is, because, for instance, we, say, we are saying things regularly, that when we have, for instance, children who are exposed to particular kinds of events, this is psychologically harmful. But the question comes there with interpretations of harm. So when people come and say, for instance, that it's incredibly, uh, they, they, they see harm everywhere, they can be claiming that actually they are espousing Mill's classically liberal harm principle, but they are applying it in a way that shows that they have zero connection or zero respect for the idea of negative liberty. That is why we have a kind of wokeness that tolerates zero disagreement and actually wants to tell us how to live. It has a code of ethics that they want to, to enforce upon us. And right. this is not classically liberal. So I'm glad you brought up Mill because um, going into the next Mark clip, just because I'm wary of time, uh, Mill was actually a defender of liberal imperialism in order to spread values outwards. And my contention with this, we've spoken off air about this before, is that how liberalism positions itself in the evolution of philosophy 
is that this is the apotheosis of how to have negative liberty and it is the culmination of the Enlightenment. It's the, it's the dominant philosophy that came out of it. We live in the liberal paradigm. And so because it seeds to itself that moral legitimacy as being the kind of end of history ideology, uh, therefore, why should we not roll it out everywhere? And Bill Maher, despite saying, well, this isn't liberalism, woke isn't liberalism, it's nothing to do with it, it's basically imperialist, then goes on in this next clip to talk exactly about why you know, I mean, look, I've taken my lumps, especially after 9-11, talking, I think, honestly about the problem, the same thing Sam Harris has identified so beautifully, that there is a unique problem with the, the religion, whatever religion it is at any time in history, that is the most fundamentalist. And at this time in our history, that is Islam. Well, might be, might be woke liberalism. <laughs> hey, man, it's a, yeah. a toss-up. No, well, that is a religion, too, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, you know, it, it also might it, be which religion is being gamed most effectively at any given moment by the psychopaths. Right. But yeah. if I draw a mean cartoon of AOC, I'm not going to get killed. Yeah. But if I draw the wrong cartoon in the other religion, I will. Yes, so, that's that's I'll, not a good thing. So I'm going to like make that important to me, like which one could really kill me. Um, but things I, I really feel like things have changed a lot. I haven't talked they about have, this issue in a long time. They have changed because, you know, terrorism hasn't really been in the headlines. And yeah, well, the Abraham Accords were a big step forward. Yes. Too, man. They yes. were a big step forward. And I and things change, you know, um, I thought it was just amused me. There was a, I think, you know, must be in Minnesota, I think, where there's a large Muslim population. I forget the city, but they, the liberals, they were very proud of themselves that they elected a majority Muslim school board, which then during Pride Month refused <laughs> to do the Pride yeah, 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 thing. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. like, oh, and that's always the conundrum liberals have found themselves in, which I always ridiculed, and of course they hated me for it, that how can you be liberal? And, and because they're a minority or a different religion or their skin is brown, support them in the most illiberal actions you know just the way the women with the really we're putting a fucking tarp over a woman's head and and this is not like job one on your woke agenda would be to get the fucking it's like what they put on a prisoner you know when we're kidnapping you that's not job one to get that off every woman's head in the world that would be mine if i like was like okay Welcome to the meeting of liberals and wokesters. And we got we have we are the social justice warriors and we must establish social justice wherever it's being violated. That would be very high on my meeting agenda. Right. You'd go for the countries where I would there's go for real that oppression. specific act. Just justified global liberal imperialism based on the precepts of these people are illiberal. Therefore, it's the MLK quote from Letters from Birmingham Jail. An affront to justice anywhere is an affront to justice everywhere. Yes, but. Go on. Okay, there is a but here. Go on. I like buts, Celio. Same. That's going on the out of context. Yeah, of course it is. there we go. <laughs> anyway, continue. I wish we. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Now, uh, this is one way in which this can uh, eventuate. But I really disagree with what, what I see here is a kind of weird game with words it's a, because he says how can these people are lib claim to be liberal and support these mostly illiberal activities and actually this means that he has actually fallen for the rhetorical game he has fallen for the rhetorical attempt by illiberal people to incorporate the name liberty for their agenda why because post cold war the term liberty has become a symbol now yes most people understand it in a very uncritically and uncritical and wrong fashion, but they but it has assumed the status of a symbol. And that is why we have woke people 
and people from all over the place who want to claim the name liberty for themselves, despite the fact that they are that they have nothing to do with it. Now, with what uh, what you're saying before about the Enlightenment, this is one way to view the Enlightenment, and uh, I think that also it's a bit wrong to use a sort of quasi-Marxist language where we are talking about, for instance, classical liberalism seeds itself the moral authority. I think that it's people at the end of the day. And we, we shouldn't try and, and give agency to, to ideas, uh, to conceptual systems. But the ideas are posited by people. And, and this, is, this, is yes. part of my, this is part of my criticism. That is why it's better to say people who claim at this time and place to be liberals have said this. And the problem is that when they, are, they claim moral authority and they use a particular kind of rhetoric, this is a pervasive feature across the board. Because at the end of the day, I do think that, there is, that political realism is an indispensable tool in explaining things. We have people who want to use power and they use rhetoric to sugarcoat it. So it stands to reason that many people who, are, who have nothing to do with respecting liberty will say, how am I going to give an air of legitimacy in my attempt to exercise domination upon all other people? I will say that I'm doing it in favor of their symbols. Yeah, but I don't think that... So, uh, hang on, but we're, look, we're running out of time. Just though. one thing, look behind the rhetoric and what they're doing. And the same rhetoric... Could, a different rhetoric could be used to, to the, for the same purpose, to actually enforce to those who disagree with you their view. But the, I think the justification for the imperialism is to create the prerequisite conditions to express liberty by removing any and all perceived barriers to that, including a head covering, even if a woman would want to wear it. I, by the way, think that that religion is barbarous and backwards, but I also don't want to invade every country around the world practicing it. You could use it, and you could use all other political positions to do that. But you, could you could give arguments in favor of imperialism because you want to secure some values. So it depends on the value. If you say people who value community, for instance, I'm going to justify imperialism because of uh, I'm going to enforce the community in the way I have it in mind. Oh, yeah. But currently, we, we don't have that as the value. We have the liberal conception of liberty. as the, And that's why they've been able to subvert the paradigm. That's what I'm saying. It's like, if we had another dominant paradigm, I'd be critiquing that paradigm, but we don't. And funnily enough, I think the inability to articulate a normative moral value structure within political liberalism is why personalities become politics. And so if we go on to this one, I just wanted to contrast these next two clips, and that is that Jordan Peterson talks about the dark tetrad, right, that's behind wokeness. It's, it's Machiavellianism, sadism, psychopathy, and narcissism. Jo Josh and I have spoken about the dark triad before in relation to why women love serial killers in a contemplations. So let's just watch these guys talk about that. When you got sick, I feel like there's a little team. <laughs> we, we don't all agree on everything, but we all kind of agree on that there's a thing called sanity and there's a certain amount of stuff that lands in it and mm -hmm. certain stuff that lands out. And uh, we don't have to agree. We kind of like the fact that we don't have to agree on everything, but we're... Well, you don't learn otherwise, do you? We don't learn, but, you know, in, in, in general, we're, we don't have that many things to disagree on. So, yeah, I agree. The idea that we would lose any member of the team uh, this little Avengers squad that we have, uh, I feel like is, is, yeah, is very threatening because I feel like there are people who only think all day long about how to cancel people, mm -hmm. how to get rid of people. That is their raison d'etre. And they would like to think of themselves as social justice warriors. And they're just fucking mean girls. Mm -hmm. It's not about the worrying. 
And it's not about the social and it's not about the justice nearly as much as it is about, I got this scalp on my wall. And that's, look, the, I sadism, found, that's the sadism part. That's right. You I found somebody who's uh, less morally aware than me and my friends because they didn't get the memo about Latinx. We say yeah. Latinx now. Oh, shut up, fetch girl. Yeah. I like the Mean Girls reference. You see, when there isn't an audience in uh, in front of him, that he makes more sense than usual. Yes, and it's funny that he makes that amount of sense. Basically, almost verbatim quoting Jonathan Haidt, right, of where he's saying the moral foundations of the people in a, in a vacuum of normative values are the are the things which unconsciously drive you. So, if you're just permanently wedded to the value of equality, then that becomes the gravitational force around which all of your politics swim. He can say all that. Very insightful. And then Bill Maher demonstrates himself to be one of those exact mean girls who is resentful of other people's successes and gets super defensive and insults Jordan Peterson without even knowing it and demonstrates exactly why the American liberals on the Democrat side are as awful as they are and as he was awful to Dennis Prager, as, as you've elucidated. So I just wanted to play this one. Except relationships. <laughs> you know, I, I had to, it took me a long time to learn that I'm not really built for like the kind of standard i mean you when you were ticking off like those five things you need to be happy or whatever yeah like i must say that's the one time i my bristles sort of went up because i've i don't know if you're saying this exactly but i've read it in other places i mean there's a, a i forget the guy's name but he's a famous doctor and he wrote a book on how to like be you know there's a lot of books like and how to live to be a million years old or you know how to don't die if you don't have to. Right, 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 right. It's a good title. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It, it really is. And one of his things was, you know, he had like 40 things you're supposed to do. And I agreed with most of them. You know, obviously, stay in shape and, you know, don't eat sugar. And and one of them was be married. And I was like, you know, for you, mm-hmm. it, 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 it bothers the unmarried. And there's actually, I think, probably now more of us than married now in America. I think that we tipped over that point mm-hmm. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I think singles are the majority. You just, just that idea that, you know, well, you're this doctor, you're supposed to be really smart. A lot of what you say is smart, but you don't get that that's like a personal thing. And, you know, I hate to put it this way, but sometimes when somebody gets cancer and they go like, I couldn't have gotten through it without my wife or I couldn't have gone through it without my husband. And I always want to say, yeah, maybe they gave it to you. Yeah, well, you know, relationships Not, can be definitely. Yes, they, the stress of one I'm talking well, about, of course. And it's funny though, you know, because is it, how much of it do you think is the stress of relationship and how much do you think of it how much of it do you think is the difficulty of maintaining a relationship through the stresses of life right no, because the, the a, pro- not b not, not b not life life is not the problem it's the relationship itself it's the monotony i, I mean again people are different you know, like some people that they, they love that i know guys are like they cannot wake up alone and uh that's not me you know people are different mm-hmm. you know and i don't think we give that enough um respect that idea i think we all there's a lot of this assuming if you're not you know if you want to be happy be married you know just get in get in line buddy come on this is what we're doing here we're doing the marriage thing to be you do you you know yeah we don't give it respect because frankly why is bill maher a respectable person i mean just look at look at the two of them there right bill maher is dressed like an overgrown child He's got loads of booze and dope on the side of his table. Jordan Peterson is teetotal. And Bill Maher is sitting there suggesting that the stress of a relationship which he couldn't maintain might have given the other partner cancer. To Jordan Peterson, who has just recovered from a debilitating illness because his wife had cancer and they've been able to maintain their relationship. But the resentment exuding from Bill Maher 
is actually the prerequisite reason why he wants to be a liberal. It's why he wants to dissolve those, those cultural... No, it's why he wants to dissolve those cultural expectations, because he feels bad about falling short in himself, so he wants a doctrine of politics, imperially, which makes him feel less bad by other people living out standards which he knows he could never live up to. Well, I think that this is a bit psychologizing. I'm happy to psychologize, especially with a man in that shirt. I mean, it's okay. I mean, I generally don't, don't like it. So I, w- I will abstain from psychologizing. But I want to address the substance of the issue you raised. Uh, there are people who are afraid of responsibility in all political positions. And they could, be, they could be attracted to any kind of political position for all sorts of reasons. And very frequently, they're attracted to illiberal uh, positions because they don't want the liberty and the freedom of choice. They don't want the responsibility of choice. If you want some cycle, illiberal with a little L. Uh, why? Because, as we've already established, there are socially liberal doctrines which dissolve standards as the prerequisite to liberty. So those people would be more attracted to the doctrine than which allows them to evade the standard. Yes, but there are all sorts. That's not unique to liberalism. You could say, for instance, but it is to that our current paradigm. Well, exactly. I I don't I don't accept the the collapse of the current paradigm with what liberalism is. I think it's a logical extension. Uh, I think it's a logical extension on your part when you attack classical liberalism with a capital L or liberalism with a capital L. And at the end of the day, it, it goes at the fi- fundamental question um, on how do, we re- how do we relate to people who disagree with us on value systems. I think if Bill Maher is a person who things that, for instance, marriage is not good for him, most probably he's not going to be a good parent. So what would happen if, for instance, people like Bill Maher were forced by society and, and the, the kind of moral pressure were forced by society to have children? Maybe, maybe he would be a bad father. Yeah, but you're saying moral pressure, you're saying state pressure, because this is the difference between. Yeah. So with, with moral pressure, I think moral pressure should be exerted to the level where you are the type of person, you are formed into the type of person that's worthy of being a parent, like Jordan Peterson tries to do. And Bill Maher is saying, actually, not, not state-mandated marriages, just even advice but, that you should get married is actually oppressive and it's upsetting to people that can't quite hack it. There are, so we need to dissolve the standard so I can feel better. I understand. There are people who say this. Okay, but I don't see why, for instance, this is unique to to liberalism. Oh, I think there are people, for instance, who want to say that. Well, I don't want the I don't want the burden of a choice, so I want to ask my local priest to tell me what should I do. Sure, but he's not saying that because he's identifying. He's not saying, but the the same way that you wouldn't accept this argument against another position, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't accept this the argument you make for this position. But I'm saying that his version of liberalism, which I think is a logical extension from the paradigm that we currently inhabit, is in the same way as the wokesters that he says has nothing to do with him, trying to dissolve social expectations so everyone can have the fundamental supposition of moral equality no matter what their behaviors are. When you have people who have, let's say, the freedom to act, not all of them are going to act well. But the same applies for, let's say, if you had the completely tyrannical... uh, Regime. You would disagree. still have a person who would call the shots on everything. But I'm not, that person is gu- almost guaranteed. But you keep to, moving to, into state to, to power. I'm liberty. not talking about state power. I'm talking about cultural pressure. And he's saying I want to dissolve cultural pressure as well. Yes. And the reason I'm doing that is because we are doing a category error here. Because I, I think that political liberalism is supposed to be 
a doctrine that has to do with the relation between the state and the governed. Yeah. It doesn't say that we are going to give answers to every question. It, it, it actually shows a lot of trust to civil society. Now, there should be more pressure in civil society. I agree with you. But we should always think when we want to try and force people into a particular play, let's say, we need to also be aware of the actors. It's not about forcing. Some people may not, may not be good enough to be parents. It's not about forcing, it's about saying. trying to provide moral guardrails. And those people that aren't capable of being parents should also have strict vocations or can't have kids, for example, that allow them to serve as uh, spiritual parents in many such ways that Jordan Peterson is capable of being. So like, like a father figure to multiple men that he hasn't directly fathered himself. And Bill Maher is happy to tear asunder all of those social expectations, well, okay. which would allow people to do that. Well, I mean, I, I don't understand how this is, a, is an attack against liberalism because... Because the paradigm is the logical extension of it. Yeah, but that, okay, that is posing a kind of necessity in things that I just think is unsupported. No, it's just an observation of how it's evolved, I think. And so I well, you to... cannot you cannot justify claims about necessity and universality by just observation. Well, I'm not saying necessity. I'm saying that it has evolved out of that because of the exact precepts. Well, some people have evolved that this way, but you know there is wokeness in all sides. You could be a, a, a big C conservative and become woke. I don't think you can become a conservative wokeist. I don't, I don't accept that position. Oh, you could. Um, it, well, it, it depends on if, if people slowly, in a matter of decades, start eroding the idea of a community. And then you want to say that your ideal community is a community when everyone is respected and to be respected is for uh, all their wishes to be granted and for no one to disrespect them. Then it follows that as a matter of wanting to establish a good community, you need to actually do that. Now, I reject this kind of community and this conception of a community, but I'm showing you how with language we can play along and justify all kinds of things with, with everything. It's a possibility, it's not, which what is I'm why saying I think is that a theological It is basis. not unique into... I'm just not unique into conscious of doing the last clip so we don't run over on your segment. So let's just go to the last one because I just wanted to um, examine the character of Bill and, and exactly why he then gets defensive as soon as Peterson decides to say, well... Um, maybe, maybe you know, it works for me. Why, why don't you give it a try? So I'm not the boyfriend. This. I wasn't good at that. I'm the king. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's great. You can have your boyfriend, your Lancelot, but it was just never the role that I was meant to play. So I just got more comfortable the older I got to this day. You know, and of course, at some point that will end because you know we are pushing you know the age where <clears throat> I guess <clears throat> that uh, is around the corner. But you know. Until they stop me, <laughs> I'll continue to live young. So, you know, to answer your question, what keeps me going? I think a lot of it is that I like the fact that I didn't have kids because then I didn't like pass on. I didn't trade my life for someone else's life, which is what you sort of have to do when you have kids. It's noble and it's I get the sacrifice. But like I'm, I'm what maybe, really what ha what has sustained you? I mean, you talked about your parents. And you're grateful to the, to that relationship. Yeah. Why do you think you were so successful in terms of maintaining long term friendships, but not successful in terms of because I don't see it as a success. You're, right, see, but, the you way, see, but you do I, see how I know, the, long, the, the friends as a... Just the way the question is phrased. Yeah, okay. You are not successful at keeping long-term relationships. Yeah, I, I, I threw the game, okay, Doc? <laughs> I didn't want to be successful. I took a dive in the third round. Yeah. Right, but, but, it's, but it's, it's curious to me that you... But that isn't the case on the friendship front. But it's so different. Friendships, okay, what, you don't what? get tired of the sex. I, I still love hanging out with Jim Bowley, and we never, ever expect sex. Ever. Not once in 45 years. And it's so there's just not that dimension to it that 
is always hanging over the head like the sword of Damocles over relationships. The clock's always ticking on them for when the passion runs out. And that's the dilemma everybody finds themselves in. Everybody finds themselves in it. It's just how people handle it. Some people cheat. Some people leave. Some people don't care. Some people just suck it up. <laughs> you know, everybody has their way of dealing with it. But it's going to happen. No one, I mean, and no one who's in a long-term relationship is going to say, oh, yeah, 20 years on, and we still, like, attack each other when we walk in the door. It's just, it, come on. That's, that's, that's true in my case. You still attack each other? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know, I know it's it like, we just played stump the band. Sorry, man. You got me. Sorry. You win yeah, yeah. dinner at Peppy's. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow, that's very impressive. That's, it's, that's it's really, really it's, okay. it's really it's, better, well, you know, better man than I. I think that's probably the best bit to end on. Better men than Bill, because Bill is is very willing to project his personal insecurities and get very defensive as soon as someone else paints a happier, healthier picture of life. Let me just say two quick things. Yep. I think, first of all, what he said is completely wrong because uh, you still have the friendships could still end up badly. Mm -hmm. So when he talked about friendship is not a double-edged sword, but marriages are, this is completely wrong uh, on his part. But also I want to say that it's fine to not want to have children, but it's quite another thing to try and actually make a virtue out of it and try to preach the whole message to everyone that they shouldn't, and I find that repugnant. Yeah, and I agree, but I think the, the extension of his version of, of liberalism, where autonomy is all that matters, well, I, I think the, the only note I'd like to end on is perhaps if liberal uh, individualism is your sole value, then it might be able to liquidate everything that's meaningful, and it just ends up with loneliness. So you might need a little bit more wholesome heart at the center of, of your politics, and, and that's what Peterson represented. So. Okay, speaking of Jordan Peterson, um, the, our first collaboration was this uh, the beginning of this uh, year, this January. And we talked about uh, a case where Jordan Peterson was ordered by the Ontario College of Psychologists to undergo mandatory media, social media training. I would love to sit in that room when it happens. <laughs> well, there is a very big chance that we are going to see what is going to happen in the room, uh, as uh, Jordan Peterson has said. Now, what is uh, interesting is that he was ordered by that to undergo media re-education training, and he was told that basically if he doesn't do this, he's going to risk lose, losing his license as a clinical psychologist. Now, anyone can understand that this is more a hit on his image because he's not practicing clinical psychology for some years now. And uh, what is even more ridiculous is that uh, this kind of training in social media conduct is supposed to be a training by the college's social media experts, and that technically is not a field. I mean, also to say that, you know, social media experts, is, is a, it's a bit weird. Well, also, if they subject him to like the unconscious bias training thing, yes, for and, example, it's already been disproven that because the test does not have the the replicability of the results because you can actually improve your score each time you take the test because it's basically testing reaction time but it's scientifically bunk so if they adopt something like that as well it just shows that these people have been captured not by the scientific method but by our ideology yes and also imagine uh, people who claim to be social media conduct experts who don't participate in social media i do think maybe someone does need to talk to jordan about his twitter because i love the man but he's writing in haikus and posting photos of that bloody stalk i don't thing. mind i don't mind I, I, 
I think it's it's slightly less. It is eccentric, but in a, in a I think in more a way of, that it it makes you thought. I think, think it's been it gives you some homework. He's probably been more articulate in the past. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Well, he went to court and to the court of appeal, and he appealed um, against uh, the Ontario College of Psychologists. And sadly, two days ago, the court um, ruled uh, in favor of the Ontario College of Psychologists. So that was a really bad uh, move, but. There is such a possibility, there is a thing such as the possibility of it turning as a boomerang against them. So I, I have the impression that he is going to turn it into a big thing and he is going to actually win them and they're going to lose badly. That's my uh, impression and my sense. But the question is, society is a bit challenging at the moment. There are many people who think that we're doomed to an inevitable decline. Are they right? Are they wrong? Ride the tiger. If you want to find, if you want to find out, I'm, I, I'm riding no tiger, by the way. If you want to find out, you can visit a website, lotusiris.com, and you can, for five pounds a month, you can gain access to all our premium content and watch videos such as Symposium 33, where we are talking with Bo about historical inevitability. Bo is the person to talk to if you're interested in history. And we're actually examining the methodology of the claims that people make, the methodology behind the claims people make, when they're t- saying that we are either destined to, uh, to achieve uh, infinite progress and take humanity to the Elysium fields, or we are doomed to an inevitable decline. And uh, long story short, we're saying that methodologically speaking, both narratives are fishy. Well, it'll be interesting when we talk to a certain consolidator of Prophets of Doom that's coming into the studio next week. Well, uh, prophecy has a factual element into it. There's a factual sense, and I just don't think it's a fact. And if you want to see why this is, it's basic methodology, basic talk about human induction and that, you know, stuff like that, by all means, check it. Now, Uh, Let's see this tweet from January 3, 2023. Uh, Jordan Peterson says, to clarify, it has been decided. I'm either to submit to social media communication retraining or face a disciplinary hearing and possible suspension of my clinical license and the right to represent myself as a psychologist. And if you see down here a bit, he says, I'm mounting a constitutional challenge but have little faith in the remaining integrity of the Canadian judiciary. And I can't believe I am now faced with the necessity of doing such things and not believing they will work. So there's an issue here because at the end of the day, I have the impression that the most, the the thing that is the most thorny for his enemies is his outspoken criticism of the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And let me just give you, show you one tweet, remind you one tweet from February last year, where Justin Trudeau says, Canadians have the right to protest, to disagree with their government, and to make their voices heard. We'll always protect that right. But let's be clear, they don't have the right to blockade our economy or our democracy or our fellow citizens' daily life. It has to stop. And I think actually, if you see Trudeau's actions, this claim is entirely hypocritical. And actually, 
unreal. Well, he suspended the bank accounts of multiple people, not just involved in the truckers' protest, but who donated yes. to the protests. And the reason they were protesting was because he was acting like a draconian crazy person over the COVID mandates, whether it be the lockdowns or the vaccine mandates. So they were completely justified in protesting against this, and Justin Trudeau acted like a tyrant. And his response was, then stop, pop it. Now, what's your endgame, Justin Trudeau? Lay it out. So this was one. Right there. Sorry. It's all right. I'll do it. You're having trouble. Excuse me. Sorry. Can we scroll down a bit? Can I have the. Okay. So. He says that he is unwilling to undergo the mandatory training and uh, he is interested in filming it. So right now, I, I have the impression that this is going to backfire on the Ontario College of Psychology. I did see that Elon Musk suggested he live stream it in Twitter space, which yes. would be quite funny. So uh, one thing, just to show you something that uh, came here, uh, we have uh, just a slide. What I, th I, I think this training may involve is going to be this something like this slide, which says that basically microaggression is a comment or action, whether intentional or unintentional, that expresses a prejudiced attitude towards a member or a marginal group, such as, example, I believe the most qualified person should get the job. Well, clearly they don't believe that, considering they're going after Jordan Peterson for completely spurious reasons. But Yes. Okay. So, but ju just uh, wanted to show you that basically, uh, if you talk about meritocracy, you're actually committing an act of microaggression. Yeah, you're far right. And this seems to me to be uh, what we said before about harm. This seems to me exactly what we were talking about. It's the ridiculous extension of uh, the, the meaning of a word. And uh, they're trying to find everywhere and everything to be aggressive. So this is, this is where wokeness begins. Uh, now, let's see at this uh, court justice, the Superior Court Justice of Ontario ruled against Jordan Peterson, and they said, for instance, reasons for the decision. Overview, he says, when individuals join a regulated profession, they do not lose their charter right to freedom of expression. At the same time, however, they take on obligations and must abide by the rules of the regulatory body that may limit their freedom of expression. This case raises the clash between a member to moderate that speech. And they proceed to say some other stuff. But I want to say that this seems to me to be entirely implausible. How so? Because I can get the idea of having to restrict speech if you enter some professions, but I don't see how expressing your political opinion outside the clinic is something that is supposed to, that should be limited. Well, even within the clinic itself, unless you have all of your sessions recorded and you have your, uh, or even live streamed and you have your psychologist mic'd up at all times, you're relying on the testimonies of the patients to self-report malfeasance. And Peterson has already had an adverse experience of that, where he said he was accused of sexual impropriety because while he was listening to a female patient, he was fiddling with his wedding ring, which he took to be suggestive. Obviously, she's a crazy person. But then outside of that, it's obviously, I think part of the reason why you're confused is because it's not actually meant to be a workable thing. It's just meant to be a standard by which they can arbitrarily persecute their political opponents. Yes. 
No, I'm not confused. It's rhetorical. Yeah, I know. No, I'm but I, I want to show exactly what I think is wrong with it. Is that I think that that they are that they are using a language that has an air of legitimacy that actually what they're doing is far more pernicious. But it's not and about I, hypocrisy, it's about hierarchy. Yes, and I think that this is something important that we should always remember that behind the rhetoric people use, we, there, there are actions. And we should always compare actions and rhetoric. And very frequently, they don't go well together. Now, let's see in the, on the next page here, in background, it says page three of uh, 18. It says here, since at least 2018, the college has received complaints about Dr. Peterson's public statements. Some complaints have been formal, but many were tweeted to the college via the social media platform Twitter and often involved Dr. Peterson's views on topics of social and political interest, including transgender questions, racism, overpopulation, and the response to COVID-19, among others. Um, according to Jordan Peterson, a lot of the people who filed these complaints have mistakenly claimed to have been his clients. Yes. And when you make a case uh, against someone, you very frequently you, you have to you have to say who you are, how you know them, and what happened. You have to it's demonstrate not, standing. Yeah, it's not like Jordan Peterson is a, a kind of organization that people who say something against him need witness protection. Okay? Well, For it's, God's sake. It's not even that. It's just the boundaries by which the institution that is persecuting him has jurisdiction is only in relation to his clinical practice. What he says outside of it, if people claim that they've been upset or harmed or, or aggrieved by something Peterson has said in his capacity as a public intellectual, it should have no standing with the, it, it's the Ottawa, Ottawa board, correct? Of, of psychologists. It, this, shouldn't, this shouldn't be a case, but they just want to arbitrarily persecute because he's effective. I think it's the Ontario. I Ontario, the sorry. Ottawa Court of Appeal. There we go. That uh, ruled in the- Canadians, name your places better, please. I like their names. Some, they, they have a, an exotic sound. What, French? I mean, some of them are, are, are good. Saskatchewan, I like this. Bless you. Also, uh, yeah, they, they have good. Uh, my, my, my cousin was born there, so I have an affinity for that place. Right. Uh, also, it says here, between January and June 2022, the college received numerous reports about Dr. Peterson's conduct on social media and in his public appearances. The reports again raised concerns about Dr. Peterson's professionalism, including whether his tweets complied with the college's standards of professorial, professional conduct. And uh, they're talking about his tweets, and they are reminding a tweet that he mentioned about, about uh, overpopulation. You've opened it in the wrong tab, that's why. There okay. you go. So, uh, and they're saying that, sad, that he was act allegedly incentivizing people to commit suicide. And a, a clinical psychologist should never do that. And uh, obviously, a uh, you know, shouldn't do that. But if they had, if they look in the context of that statement, it's, it's immediately a, rid a ridiculous accusation. What it just does here is he tells people who are playing the antinatalist card, well, if you practice as you preach, you will have to exit this planet. That's his, that's his message. He doesn't say exit the planet. He actually says, stop spilling nonsense out to people. And let us just remind this tweet from, from uh, January 3, 2022. He had a spat with someone called Roger Palfrey, who was saying, I disagree. Based on the record of human behavior, we're already overpopulating this small world. 
Any arguments I have heard for supporting such a large human population completely overlook the huge loss of species and ecosystem resulting from our absorbed abstention. attention. And Joe Wilson replies, you're free to live at any point. And he's absolutely correct, 100% correct. Because what this person is doing is like saying, well, we need less people. We need less people. People, we need less people. Okay? That's what he says. But at the end of the day, he is preaching something and he doesn't want to incur the cost of his suggestion. And I think that this is hypocrisy of the worst kind. And he is correct. Jordan Peterson is correct to show it. So how can this be an incentive? How can this constitute incentivization of people to commit suicide? It's actually an incentivization to cut the crap. Sure. Um, I mean, the way in which he would leave would be to exit himself from the planet. And Elon Musk isn't going to bring him to Mars anytime soon. So the implication is for him to um, take himself out rather than encourage everyone else to do so. But it's also clearly half a joke. But again, context doesn't matter. Hypocrisy doesn't matter to people that just want to dominate their political. But they use this precise tweet to say that a further complaint about Dr. Peterson's a tweet in which Dr. Peterson responded to an individual who expressed concern about overpopulation by stating, you're free to leave at any point. The further complaint provided a link to a GQ interview in which Dr. Peterson made a similar comment about suicide. Well, again, this is an incentive for people to stop being hypocrites. And when they're talking about anti-natalist stuff, they're proposing solutions that involve less people. They're actually saying, no, they, they want their behind to be safe, okay? But they want to play that with other people, so, with other people. So they can have the pat in the back and say and claim how moral they are at saving the planet. Right. Now, let's see the next clip, the next link, please. By uh Joe Peterson, he says here after the court ruled in favor of the OPC, he says, "So the Ontario Court of Appeal ruled that the, the Ontario College of Psychologists can pursue their prosecution. If you think that you have a right to free speech in Canada, you're delusional. I will make every aspect of this public, and we will see what happens when utter transparency is the rule. Bring it on. Right, and I think that uh, we can uh, watch uh, the next clip, please, from the interview he did with his daughter. Can I read just a couple of sentences from the decision so people have an idea of what's in here? It's linked below. People can read the entire thing. But there's parts, like this is how it begins. When individuals join a regulated profession, they do not lose their charter right to freedom of expression. At the same time, however, they take on obligations and must abide by the rules of their regulatory body that may limit their freedom of expression. That's just one sentence after another. That's how it starts. Yeah, yeah, perfect. It's a great thing to highlight. You know, it's, it's like, well, you have this fundamental right, but, well, but what? What rules? There's what? There's a rule, eh? There's a rule. Is that right? that the College of Psychologists has that I can't criticize Justin Trudeau on Twitter. That's a rule, is it? And if someone anywhere in the world complains about the fact that I've criticized Justin Trudeau, let's say, then all of a sudden that's a rule, even though it wasn't a rule. And of course I get to criticize Justin Trudeau, not only because he richly deserves it in every way you could possibly imagine, but because that's actually what freedom of speech means. So I have no idea what the court means by, you know, abiding by the rules. So yeah. the rules are whatever the bloody... College of Psychologists determines constitutes a rule 
after the fact, given their complete freedom to make manifest any rules they want. Yes, yeah. it's beyond comprehension. And yeah, yeah but, but I have freedom of speech. It's like, do I now? What do I get to talk about? Apparently, I can't even talk about the weather. So I, I, I just want to make one note to Dr. Peterson, who I, I very much enjoy, that I know the suits are part of his character, but he's starting to look like Tommy Lee Jones' Two-Face, so I might want to drop that one. Okay, so what is unprecedented here is the retroactive implementation of this alleged rule. So most probably what happened, of course, there wasn't such a rule before, but they tried to mend, mend somehow the case and present it in a rhetoric, in a language that seems to answer to the previous rules. And he's correct that this is retroactive. It's after the fact happened. So after the criticism, suddenly it became a rule that you cannot express political opinion. And there was that, that's mostly what is the issue behind it. And this is very worrying for anyone who is in favor of free speech, even, in not, if you, even not absolute free speech. If you think that free speech is important, this is something that is important to, to bear in mind. Um, it, it's, it's really tyrannical. It's like saying, you know, you can have a, any kind of retroactive, anyone is guilty. Anyone can be pronounced guilty because if they deviate to any slight degree from the, the, this managerial woke agenda, there will be laws or rules that will be applied retroactively. And I'm glad Peterson's fighting it. And, and it's not like he needs it anymore because it's not going to go back to his clinical practice because he's serving a much greater role as a kind of cultural father figure. But I can't really get outraged about it. Like I'm, I'm, I understand why he's very frustrated as a personal slight on his path and uh, on his part. And I really want him to succeed in this. But we, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, this is the guy who warned about this happening seven, eight years ago now. And all of his predictions have come to pass. So it's just another in a long line of arbitrary political persecutions by people playing the friend-enemy distinction. It is, but I think that he's in a unique position to fight yes. this for several reasons. And uh, most other people don't have the means to do so. Yes. So he gets outraged for that as well, I'm willing to bet. So most for him personally, it's, uh, it depends how we conceive of self-interest. I have uh, the impression that he doesn't conceive of his self-interest just in terms of losing his license, which, you know, if wokeness, it could be reinstated in the future. I think he's more interested in the wider significance Setting of the issue. Precedent. And the reason is why, because, for instance, um, he does seem to have the ability to, let's say, have uh, good lawyers. He also doesn't uh, require them to require, he, he doesn't make his living right now from clinical psychology. Uh, he's very well articulate. And I think that he is in a unique position to fight this fight. But most people are not. And most people are likely to fall under this blackmail that the managerial class is trying to do that is extremely unpopular. And they're trying to create regulatory boards in, on each profession and they're applying, even retroactively, a set of rules that is actually dominating ordinary people in their workforce. You could actually be found guilty of anything if you express your opinion on, in a, such a way that suggests that you disagree with that 
woke agenda. And I think that this is incredibly pernicious. It's, it is a danger to our current society. Okay, It's a danger to any society that praises, let's say, public discussion because it actually hints that people will be blackmailed by the regulatory board members of their professions to not have a public opinion, to not engage in public and not talk in public. So it's like saying, no, if you, dis if you disagree with the managerial agenda, um, shut up or leave. That's the kind of blackmail. And uh, let's, uh, let us watch the next clip. Like, what does the average Canadian do to fight back against this? Get involved in the political process at whatever level they can. Get involved in the school boards. Get involved in the political parties. Get involved in local elections. Volunteer for election. Start, start differentiating between the false government, state-funded legacy news and actual news, if you can do that, even though that's become impossible in Canada, too, because yeah. now Canadians can't get news. It's like, look, here's the rule, Mick. This is the rule. All responsibility on the political front abdicated by the average citizen will be taken up by tyrants and used against you. And so you either take responsibility for this, which means to get involved in the political process, or you suffer the consequences. Now, you know, a young person might be thinking, well, what could I do? And I would say, you know, that's actually not a good attitude. And I mean that practically, because what you will find if you're young, if you go volunteer for a political campaign, let's say, first of all, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to sharpen your political beliefs. You're going to learn how to put an argument forward. And then if you're competent and hardworking, you're going to find that avenues of opportunity open for you on the political front so quickly that you can hardly imagine it. And that's partly because most political organizations are chronically short of help and absolutely chronically short of competent help. And so if you step into the political arena, you'd learn to speak more fluently, you'd learn to put your arguments together, you'd learn to be more responsible, you'd take the responsibility onto yourself and strengthen yourself as a consequence, you'd keep the country on the straight and narrow, and you'd keep it free, and all sorts of opportunities would emerge for you. And so that's what you do. Now, people don't do that. And it's partly also because they're taught, oh, you know, the whole system is so corrupt that nothing can be done about it. It's like, well, if that's the case, you're in real trouble. And if it's not the case, take advantage of the opportunity. Get out there. Do something about it. You know, you're a citizen. It means you have some responsibility. If you're a citizen without responsibility. You're headed for slavery. Simple as that. That's how the world works. Well, I, I fully agree with him because it seems to me that when we, in order to be citizens, we need to assume responsibility. And where, wherever we don't exercise, let's say, our civil liberties, and we don't engage in, uh, in, in public, and we don't practice civic participation, what happens is the following. We have gaps of public attention, and people have huge incentives to take advantage of these gaps of public attention. They engage in practices that are incredibly unpopular, I would say. I think the woke agenda is deeply unpopular incredibly unpopular. They are engaging in these practices, and the very few people who talk about it, they get vilified. Why? Because the people are not assuming their responsibility to a sufficient degree to get informed and actually get informed about how, how dangerous and pernicious and tyrannical wokeness is and actually do something about it. I think they should be able to do something about it in their own lives, but I also think that that is wrongheaded in the conception that everyone should be involved in politics at all times, because that is also another road to tyranny. I think there should be a 
insulated private sphere where people are not required to engage even with our content as much as most of them do because they just want to be normies and live quiet lives. So I, I think this is actually a pretty important example of why the Vanguard elite, for example, Jordan Peterson, very much one of those, can set case precedent in tackling these captured institutions and the rest of people who, let's be frank, aren't as well suited for the fight can kind of just get on with stuff. I see this, but I think that you are actually um, adopting the negative aspect of classical liberalism. Because if you focus so much on, on negative liberty and you don't focus on the other aspect of civic participation and you know, informed citizenship, there is no chance in hell that people won't completely destroy this sphere of activities. People will want to enter into your house. And by, by, by the following rationale, the, the personal is the political. What you do in your own house is, is actually a political issue. So let's enter your house. Yes. So it you seems to be me able that, to remove those people, that this is actually the, the, the unappealing feature of extreme classical liberalism. That it, if we praise only negative liberty and the extreme case of it, yes, we will end up with wokeness. Yeah, but okay, let me, let, me, let me frame it this way. I don't think people should be unplugged and underwear, but I don't think everyone needs to start a podcast and speak up because not everyone should be involved in the political fight in such a degree as to where they currently are being forced to. Of course, I don't think that everyone should. Uh, first of all, what you're saying is impossible. Not everyone can start a podcast. Yeah, I, but most, the problem is that most people, when you try to talk to people you know, individually yes. about how pernicious the, the woke agenda is. I'm sure many people are really hesitant in uh, accepting your message. That's, that's a problem. They're hesitant because they are vi they're not informed about it. A lot of people are still not informed about most how dangerous wokeness is. Most people I speak to aren't hesitant, but then they're just getting into anecdotes, so it's not... Okay, so well, ju let's just end with this. I won't say that uh, there's a survey here that says that three in ten say that Canadians say that Justin Trudeau is the worst recent uh, prime minister. And uh, it is very suggestive. It doesn't mean that 70% thinks he's the best. Let, let me just get this out. Only, only I think, around 11% of Canadians say that he is the best uh, recent PM. But there is a problem that when you have 30% of the population and you are actually contributing to a situation where people are unable to express their dissatisfaction with Justin Trudeau, that's alienating 30% of the population. That is not a smart move. That is actually a very tyrannical move. And on that note, I think uh, we could go to the third segment. Wonderful. Okay. I'm just going to try and fix this stream deck. I'm just going to check if this works. With it. No, it doesn't. Right. How about this? Yeah, that works. Wonderful. Tech hiccups. Joys of a new studio, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, fantastic. So there's some new demographic data that's been dropped by the Office of National Statistics, and it turns out, yet again, we're in a total nightmare. So if we look at here, we've got the ONS data for England and Wales. This has just been released on the 17th of August, 2023. This was for 2022. In England and Wales, the number of live births to UK-born women, so that's the native population, but that's not even broken down by ethnicity as well. So the numbers are getting fudged a little bit. 
decreased from 445,055 in 2021 to 422,109 in 2022. So that's about a 23,000 person drop. 22-23. And so, in England and Wales, 33.3% of all live births were to non-UK-born mothers. So a third, almost a third, of all births are to immigrant populations in the UK. So we can see the demographic chart shifting more towards the new, diverse Britons rather than the people that have nowhere else to go. Um, this is up from 28.8, so that's a near 2% jump. Continuing the long-term trend of the percentage of live births, non-UK mothers generally increasing. In 2022, turns out that India, for women, and Pakistan, for men, were the most common countries of motherhood and fatherhood. So we're seeing a subcontinental resurgence. It turns out that we're being reverse colonized, I suppose. In 2022, two-thirds of live births in London occurred to parents where either one or both parents were born outside the UK. And so we've got some charts here. But Migration Watch ended up calculating that the domestic birth rate from the raw numbers is 1.494. Now, that's not broken down by ethnicity. So we can only assume that the numbers are being bumped up by India, Pakistan, Romania, and the like. And so the domestic birth rate for British women is much, much lower than that. Reminder, replacement birth rate is 2.1. So we are about six points and counting below replacement birth rate. So we've got reality on two TV screens here, right? It was first, it's not happening. Now it's apparently a good thing. UK birth slump dubbed good for the planet as number of babies born hits 20 year this low. Nonsense. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted uh, to annoy you with antinatalism. Yeah, no, this absolute nonsense. You know, when I get pissed off with a carbon footprint, yes, because they constantly say that, you know, people, babies that, that are born in the West and people in the West, they have carbon footprint, high carbon fo footprints. And we need to replace, we need to decrease, let's say, our carbon emissions, and actually their way of doing it is calling for the reduction of the population in Western countries, as and they claim that it's a good thing, so it's not a, any conspiracy or something, it's actu an actual title. But on the other hand, they forget that this is actually the way you live. Let's say, if we, even if we agree on the concept of carbon footprint, and we, and we posit momentarily that it makes sense. The, the population that will migrate into Western societies will still live in the same way. Well, their birth rates are also going down, as is Sub-Saharan Africa's. So they're the only ones that are still above replacement, but they're losing one child every 15 years as well. So globally, the entire trend is going down. This is why, as I'll get onto shortly, mass migration is not just a problem for scarce resources, the housing market, cultural deracination. It's also not a long-term projected fix for this either. And as I spoke to Stephen Shaw about this, he looked into the data about this carbon footprint stuff. It's funny, the graphs... First of all, most of this data is collected by Paul Ehrlich's um, uh, zero population growth company, NGO, whatever the hell it is called, which have now rebranded themselves to ZPG because it looks really bad to say zero population growth. And they found that they don't account for the more efficient use of energy and resources that accrue over time with human development. So actually, carbon footprint per person goes down. Whether or not carbon footprint is actually a problem as well is never questioned, but hey-ho. And also, their graphs only start at a specific point and then end at a specific point, not accounting for the fact that birth rates are naturally dropping anyway. Again, bad thing, but I suppose it's not a bad thing if you just want less white people, as this woman seems to be. So in this article, it says, Britain's top demographics expert, 
Clearly not if she has this opinion. Sarah Harper, and she's got CBE as well, so she's regime endorsed. The founder and director of the Oxford Institute for Population Aging and a former government advisor said falling birth rates in the West were good for our planet. Professor Harper told The Telegraph, I think it's a good thing that the high income, high consuming countries of the world are reducing the number of children they're having. I'm quite positive about that. The academic said declining fertility in rich countries would help to address the general overconsumption that we have at the moment, which has a negative impact of the planet. Now, I agree, consumerism is very bad. It's also bad just because it dumps microplastics in our oceans and makes us really ill. But that doesn't mean that we should be the carbon that this woman wants to reduce. Let me just say, because I like uh, looking at how people use language, it's sort of a hobby. The planet has no welfare. I really think it's really ridiculous when people say good for a planet. Yeah, who's going to inherit Rather than, planet? for instance, saying something like good for the system that sustains human life. But they cannot say the latter because they're antinatalists. And they fundamentally hate humans. Yeah, they're misanthropes. Absolutely. So speaking of uh, the quality and replacement, this is, this is the next TV screen that we're watching instead. And it's also in the Telegraph. So Telegraph is pretty good these days. Um, this is... Uh, an article that says the ONS actually didn't calculate the fertility rate in the latest release of the data, as, as the numbers I already said that Migration Watch had looked at. He said it has a fertility rate of 1.62 per woman. So he's got a bit more of an optimistic bent by about a percentage point, but that's that's not great. And the live birth rate was 55.8 per thousand women. And according to the World Bank, the fertility rate in sub-Saharan Africa and other low-income countries is 4.6 per woman. In a high-income country, by contrast, it averages at 1.5. So Britain is sitting right on the benchmark of population collapse for high-income countries. So just bring the entire third world in and, and problem solved, right? Well, it used to be more fashionable to argue that higher levels of immigration were good for productivity and therefore more than paid for themselves. That may have once been true. Think of the Huguenots, this guy says, because that's as far back as we have to go to think about the one time we had mass immigration from our neighbor France, which were pretty ethnically and culturally quite similar, and aren't just a bunch of Moroccans, but that's fine. Despite the declining birth rate, the UK's population has risen by nearly 10 million since the turn of the century, but productivity effectively stopped growing 15 years ago, a hiatus of almost unprecedented longevity. So, turns out that people aren't just homo economicus, and you can't just transplant them from one time, place, and culture into another, and they're equally as, as effective and well adapted to a certain set of, product, uh, of economic and cultural conditions. Because it turns out that these people just want to sit in hotels and smoke all day. So, yeah, not, not, not the, quite the solution we thought of. Also, if you look into the care home statistics from a survey the WHO said, because apparently we need to import a bunch of Africans to care for our elderly, one in three of them admitted to abusing patients. So I don't want to be looked after by them. I'd rather be looked after by my own kids. Not just the reason to have one kids, but one in three admitted to abusing a patient. Yeah, that's on the WHO's own website. Disgusting. Yeah, which is why the Japanese are now doing robots to look after their elderly. But that's going to be equally alienating. You're going to end up in San Junipero or something. So not a solution currently or in the future. So let, let, speaking of the future, we've got a, an image of that. I've referenced this article before in a discussion with Carl. This is Japan. So Japan, as of last year, the, the country's population plummeted by almost a million. It's because so many young people are not actually having children. In 2022, Japan saw a mere 771,000 births. And this is the first time the number fell below 800,000 since the records began back in 1899. So that's a 200-year trend that's been broken. The Prime Minister, so Fumio Kishida, has ex is extremely worried. Our nation, he declared, is on the cusp of whether or not it can maintain its societal functions. So... We have, we have a few forks in the road here. Could go down the route of mass immigration, which destroys the housing market and public services and makes everything more expensive and destroys culture and makes it feel like the people who are never asked whether or not they'd like to be demographically replaced no longer recognize the world on our doorstep. Even if they are asked yeah. and they say no, yes. it goes 
point. Exactly, yeah. So they're, they're majorly, majorly subverted by the government that said, actually, we're going to get Brexit done and lower immigration. Now we've got record immigration. Thanks for the million plus visas, Boris and the rest of the Conservative Party. Or we have the opposite, which could be economic restructure to enable more families, right? So what are Japan doing? Well, we've got this article in the New York Times. Can shrinking be good for Japan? A Marxist bestseller makes the case. Now. Well, I mean, out of all, out of all the literature you could you know, you read in order to gain insights for how to structure an economy. You picked Marxism. Just yeah. not prudent. No, no. So what I think happens in this particular article is that he diagnoses plenty of the problems with the wrong economic heuristic, but plenty of the problems, and provides the wrong solution. And what he calls degrowth is cringe. But I will make the conservative case for degrowth later. Just you wait. So, when Kaheo Sato decided to write about degrowth communism, his editor was understandably skeptical. Communism is unpopular in Japan because Japan is sensible. Economic growth is gospel. So a book arguing that Japan should view its current condition of population decline and economic stagnation not as a crisis, but as an opportunity for Marxist revolution sounded like a tough sell. Thank you, New York Times, for interviewing this obscure communist. So he, his book released in 2020, and it sold 500,000 copies. Japan, the world's third largest economy, has worked for years to promote economic growth in the shadow of an aging, shrinking population, with a monetary and fiscal policy that is among the most aggressive of any nation. But there are strong indications that the country's growth-oriented policies of ultra-cheap money and big government spending are reaching their limits. Yes, because the big government spending and ultra-cheap money are reliant on debt, and the world keeps ballooning its debt, particularly with the dollar as a reserve currency going bankrupt, as Dan has spoken about on Brokenomics multiple times, then the whole thing is going to burst like a bubble and you're going to be left poor again. Not a very sensible strategy. So growth should not be the only goal. The focus on growth is important when Japan was developing. But now the country is wealthy, Mr. Sato said, the insistence on an endlessly expanding economy described in terms of gross domestic product has produced obviously wasteful spending as the government has urged people to consume more. That's pretty based. Pretty true. Yeah. There are too many cars, too many skyscrapers, too many convenience scores, too much fast fashion. The things that you own end up owning you in fight club sense. Reorienting Japan towards goals that more effectively reflect the country's current needs, he said, would mean using metrics other than GDP to gauge the country's economic well-being. The focus would shift from quantity to quality on measures like health, education, and standard of living. Now, I agree in part, but you see the framing here is still managerial. It's, we need to quantify other things and just economic... No, no, stop trying to measure everything on a GDP graph. You shouldn't have your fingers in every pie. We should value things differently on a moral level rather than a metric level. Yeah, That's the problem. We're in agreement. And I think that what is especially managerial about this is the idea of a social engineer. Yes. And it is a particular problem that a lot of the people that, for instance, Hayek was arguing against, uh, their mentality is being embraced by the managerial class right now yes. who have a complete plan or how the economy should be run. And that is why they're making also the labor shortage arguments. Because there are some, some uh, jobs, for instance, that aren't needed anymore. Yes, okay. and they will be yeah. rendered obsolete by automation, which Japan is leading the way on. Yes, and actually Japan is really, I, I think the Japanese government is really adamant in upholding the uh, Japanese national identity. Yes. Um, they don't allow, for instance, um, uh, lots of uh, economic migrants to stay there for a long time or or to migrate with their families. So they're really strict about it. 
their immigration policies. The Yakuza are also basically state-sanctioned ethnic gatekeepers, so they kick out other gangs that are running drugs and the like. So even their criminals have a very culturally protectionist element. Okay. I don't know about that. But we'll, we'll be discussing that on the that economic of organized crime. Relation to the samurai. Yeah, they have the same mentality as an honor system. It's, yeah. they, they try and Let, conceive let's, uh, do samurai, but, but, but yes. So he says, achieving degrowth communism is less about personal choices and more about changing overarching political and economic structures. Marxism, he argues, offers a viable model, since bloody when, for reorienting society around the maximization of public goods as opposed to the endless pursuit and concentration of wealth. No, this is why you don't actually understand your own doctrine, my friend, because Marxism shares the same problem as Marx's definition of capitalism, or actually the idea just generally of capitalism, which is the exponential growth of wealth for wealth's sake. It's the generation of abundance. Marx actually aims at the same ideals as a materialist capitalist, which is just making the most economic goods and the most amount of individualism for a person. He just has the wrong way of bringing it about. I think just push that entire paradigm aside and go back to making the family the primary mode of civic participation. Again. The family is a prime social unit. It should absolutely. If people, I think there's no others. It's, I mean, if people reject the family, then society collapses. And that's what we're seeing right now, I think. And that's why even Oxfam turned around and said, well, GDP, a bit sexist, because you're not treating women like women who can be mothers. You're treating them as individual, fungible, unisex consumer units who need to change their biology and mentality to compete in the workforce on behalf of men to generate GDP for GDP's sake. Like, why do we care about making things a world that's habitable money for if we're not going to impart it yeah, off to the next generation? Yeah, there's no, there's no point. And, and so he says, I'm not saying go back to the Edo period, he said, referencing the feudal era where the country was largely closed to the rest of the world. His vision for the future is one in which people less consumed by their endless pursuit of growth for growth's sake have the leisure time to spend on a workday pursuing new interests as he does with farming. So he's treating subsistence, which was the economic mode before the Industrial Revolution, where you worked to create products for the people immediately around your own household as a leisure activity. And that's the most, as Marxists would say, bourgeois opinion imaginable, and he admits it because he says right at the end, Mr. Sato laughed, I'm definitely bourgeois. Right, so you're not going to give anything up, are you? You're just like feeding chickens as a LARP, but actually doing it would be noble, but you're not. Well, apparently he should read the economic, uh, the, the history of the plague in Europe and actually see the, the effects it had and how it changed the economic model. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked. And, and speaking of reading industrial history, if you'd like to subscribe to our website for as little as £5 a month, you can get all of our premium content, like this brand new podcast, which the audio is now fixed, you can go and listen to, Evil Origins of Feminism Part 2. I put hell of a lot of work into this one. We had an incredible discussion with Carl for two hours, and I mainly focus on Ivan Illich's gender. And if recently I've been using words that a lot of you are scratching your head, like unisex fungible consumer unit, you can understand how my frame of reference has been fundamentally changed by this. And that is that the Industrial Revolution, when it came about, it brought a disjunction in sex relations. People had gender as a culture locked in time and place. Tools were ergonomically shaped to men and women's hands. It was just how we existed. As soon as the Industrial Revolution changed it, and so it meant that machines could be operated by men or by women, it set in motion a series of cultural changes that ended up with the digital and sexual revolutions that commanded men and women change themselves in order to participate in the workforce and generate e as much capital equally for the sake of making capital. And so this is, this is the point. This is the flashpoint where feminism came out of. It was, it was an inevitable destruction of the family unit, legitimated by technology. So when people complain, all we need to do is get rid of feminism, the birth rates will go up. No, guys, like the, the pill was the reason that feminism has become the dominant hegemon. Same, same with the unisex factory machine and the laptop and all that. 
What we basically need is a technological change, consciously renouncing some of these things so we might come back together. So we can't, people, people respond to our incentives more than ideas, basically. This is exactly why I said in the, on the first segment that we need to think about our values and to have a very pluralistic approach towards them. I wouldn't say pluralistic. I think, I think we need a, a unidirectional cultural movement towards something more wholesome. And well, well, you are saying something more wholesome, but yes. what, what you understand as wholesome, presumably, involves a lot of values, isn't it? Yes, but it's not, very, it's not pluralistic across multiple, multiple value traditions. It's one umbrella value tradition with multiple values contained within it, right? Because multiculturalism is untenable. You can, you can have... Oh, I agree. Yeah, exactly. You can, I agree it is, but uh, okay. That, that's semantics for now. Let's leave that. Well, yeah. Okay. And I just thought I'd finish on this. So there's a, uh, a Twitter thread, which was quite interesting, that just looks at the maps of below and, and above replacement birth rates. And on this, it decides to, to point out, and this is, comes back to the pluralism idea, that one of the leading countries is Israel in terms of its birth rates. And the reason is they have a strong religious conviction for preferentially wanting children. So without that core value, if, you ha- if your society succumbs to antinatalism or just uh, value-neutral material generation, then if you only exist to keep generating wealth for yourself and you only think about yourself and you don't have a metaphysical commitment that privileges things over just what you can register on a spreadsheet, then you can't mount a defense for the family as the primary mode of social and civic engagement insulated from the political and manufacturing realm. And so I just think that we need a values revitalization that then spearheads an economic transformation that allows men to start being single income earners for their family again to try and reverse this demographic decline. But until then, um, the country will become far more Indian Pakistani over the future. And I think our culture will be gradually erased and economics will become untenable. And so I think we should probably change that before it's too late. On to the video comments. Hello, Lotus Eaters. It's been a while. For the last eight months, I've been building a game on YouTube. 48 Chronicles is an interactive gaming stream with the stream itself acting as your game master and the players choosing the actions of the character in real time via the live chat. Join us this evening at 6 p.m. fish and chips time as we embark on another grand adventure. Jump in and listen along to the narration or play along by tagging the channel with your next move or just be a bro and hit that subscribe button. If we reach a thousand subscribers, I promise I will bully Dan and Connor into starting an OnlyFans. Thank you as always, Lotus Eaters, <laughs> and may the dice always roll in your favor. I mean, I'm Sorry, never... If it hits 1,000 subscribers, you're, you're going to get... Uh, I'm an never only... starting an OnlyFans, but it's, it's not just because I have a moral principle stance against it, but it's because out of all of the Lotus Eaters, if I took my shirt off, it just wouldn't be fair on you guys. So I have to, I have to keep a level playing field to keep all your egos in check. I, I'm doing it for you. Um... Anyway, on to the next video comment. Whilst I understand the advantage of not having open-ended questions in a survey, making it much easier to quantify the results, one of the questions was, what media do you consume at Lotus Eaters? And for myself, a lot of it I don't consume simply because I don't have time. Okay, well, you should consume more of it if you're a paying subscriber because we put some good stuff out. Um, thanks, Bane. Anyway, on to the next one. Hey, Mingo.
<laughs> this is a lovely cat. I you, have you've three got cats, cats, right? Yeah. Uh, cats seem to like me, but I, well, I used to be really allergic. But I'm just not. I'm I'm more a dog person. I like I like the the boundless joy that dogs present. Anyway, on to on to next one. A call to action or protest by conservatives, while cathartic, would only play into the progressives' hands. It would give them cause to increase their fascist policies. The best revenge is a life well lived. By merely existing by conservative values, that does more damage than any protest ever could. Just look at Bud Light or Richmond North of Richmond song. Uh, protests, sure, they're largely ineffective. Um, military coups, which I would obviously never endorse, are probably more effective. But considering um, we have absolutely no influence over government at the moment, and they're probably just going to do whatever the hell the globalists have planned anyway, then yeah, just insulate yourself and your family and try and live well. I must say that Mechnomancer's weapons should never fall into the wrong hands. He does look like that big thing in, in Robocop that shoots the guy in the office. Also in on uh, Matrix. The kind of uh, oh, what the third contraptions one? they had when they were shooting the things on Zion. Yeah, I don't really remember the the two after, but the first one's great. The other two are just unbearably rubbish. Second, they just wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> hey, fellas, you guys have uh, been talking about uh, anime and manga quite a lot recently, so I thought I might share something with you that you might not have been aware of otherwise. Um, but. Uh, Manga and anime characters actually aren't based off of people. They're based off of cats. So, uh, yeah. So something for you to think about is that manga and anime characters are not people. They are cats. No worries. I'll see you later. So, like, half of our audience is furries. You oh. said that cats have a good relationship with you? That you're more of a dog person? Yes. Which is why I don't like anime. We're doing Berserk Part 2 soon, by the way, so everyone stay tuned. Also, nice uh, nice t-shirt, Freddy Krueger. Right, last one. All right, today's California native is the Chlorogallum palmaradium. It is a very late-blooming one, and it grows from a bulb that is very large and potato-like. It can be eaten, and it has this uh, husk to it that the uh, Native Americans used to use for little, like, hand brooms, too. So very overall, very useful item. And uh, I've been trying to catch this one because it only seems to bloom when it's cooler in the evening. I like the horticultural bit. I, I, so I've been house-sitting for the last week or so, uh, two weeks now. And one of, so I built, I built, I used to dig gardens for a living and I built this particular garden. And taking care of that and just sitting out in it in the quiet is so much better than, than it's just really meaningful little activity to do. And so I think, I think more people need more gardens. There's a, there's a way of conservative pushback. I think the Chinese uh, have a good saying where they're saying that, you know, if you want to be a happy person, just, you know, grow a garden. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they should stick to probably their own gardens yeah, rather than in Africa. Most probably paraphrased it wrong. But... Uh, right, so we'll do a few comments before we wrap up. We'll, we'll just run over for a few minutes. Why not? Um, Richard, your bloody last name is almost possible. Mon Monikinden. Thank you. Liberalism is awful. It tolerates the intolerable. It stinks to high heaven. The rose to hell is paved with good intentions. Intentions aren't enough. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Liberty thing, like communist countries calling themselves democratic republics during the Cold War, just political word games. I imagine that you're 
not too pleased by that. I mean, I just I understand how this can be a reaction to it, uh, an emotional reaction. Most probably, it's not with, with uh, Richard. I don't know if to what it, what uh, Richard has in mind, but I think that sometimes, if looked from one position, the the idea of toleration it may seem bad. It may seem that liberals are tolerating more, are morally complacent. But on the other hand, the question is just think what would happen if. Uh, suddenly everyone adopted the mentality according to which they should do anything they think is right. Society would disintegrate into war. Isn't that basically what the liberal system is currently permitting, though? Well, it it leads to that place. So the question is, do we accelerate or do we try to uh, to be a bit more commonsensical. I w- I'm in favor of this. I agree. Accelerate into a reactionary monarchy. Anyway, I'm so Grant Gibson, 10 years into my marriage and my wife and I still do attack each other. would expect that in 10 years it will look the same. Well, I'm very envious, my friend, and uh, congratulations on the happy marriage. Lord Nerevar, the issue with liberalism is that it's very susceptible to the cult of tolerance, which is that we can see happening right now. Well-meaning liberals find it hard to argue that we shouldn't tolerate certain aspects of society, and they have no choice but to accept that into their worldview. Eventually, you get wokeness from this. Yeah, it's the fertile soil from which wokeness can spring. If it doesn't have an undergirding philosophy... It is not the only one. But it is the one. And it also is particularly vulnerable because it, it values equality and freedom. And if they make, if they, if wokeness positions itself as bringing equality and freedom to fruition, the value-neutral liberals I would will say, be susceptible to that. I would say that uh, it's a bit more complex than that, and a, a, a problem comes. You could say with a conservative temperament of people who are, if if you understand the conservative temperament to be resistance to fast change, that means that you are really happy with slow change. Could be for the worse. So the question is whether. This is also a problem in conservatism, not just liberalism. Whether a lot of conservatives are just saying, well, I want to resist fast change, but they're really okay and get habituated into a new world, let's say, because they are tolerating it. This is a problem with conservatives as a temperament rather than conserving a certain set of values and traditions localized to a time and place. Yeah, that's why I'm not conservative in temperament. Um, one, One last one from my one before we move on to yours then. Zombie, completely agree. Liberalism can't stop itself from falling into degeneracy without Christianity. Aha, man after my own heart. Mainly because the religion stood as the moral authority that upheld liberalism. Now it doesn't have to be Christianity per se. Well, you lost me there. But as long as to hold the values of liberalism but rooted in traditionalism, Christianity is easier, I must say, because it's more grounded. Well, this is this is part of the, the disagreement I will always have with, with Carl, who I'm very thankful keeps the business going. But um, if you want to be a postmodern traditionalist, what did your traditions get shaped around? It's hard to make a case for the King of England without saying he was ordained by God, because that is the the throne upon the legitimacy upon which the uh, the monarchy of England rests. I'm just not a postmodernist, and I just think I'm relativism is wrong. Yeah, I'm 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 only relativist in the C.S. Lewis sense, where relative avenues to objective morality. There we go. Okay, so S.H. Silver included in the complaints being cited against Peterson are two complaints of rude remarks to politicians. If the civilian cannot critique the political class, then it's naked tyranny. Absolutely. X, Y, and Z. Those who are better positioned to take the heat need to step up and champion the downtrodden. Jordan Peterson is not pulling the ladder up behind, as so many is his position in his position do. Yep, that's what uh, Nigel Farage seems to be doing with Coots at the moment. So kudos for that as well. Lord Nerva, Canada is a hellhole. Peterson is pretty cringe these days, but he can still be heroic by giving the Canadian government a bloody nose here. 
I think he is less effective with engaging in politics than he is in engaging with philosophy, psychology, and morality. And I think sticking to that, he would do a lot more good. Well, I mean, I can understand why he's better at that because it's his expertise. Yes. But I think that uh, it, it's very good and refreshing to see people who have a, a wide education to try and enter the political sphere. And I think it's. I mean, they, but most probably they will make mistakes, but everyone does. I think it's in the way in which he's he's done it. Um, for example, we've done a segment before on him speaking to Mohammed Hijab as a representative of the Muslim community was probably not the best calculation. I think just be careful of how far Dr. Peterson has spread himself thin, but I'm looking forward to ARP. And Paul uh, Neubauer, the basic problem is that Canada grants arbitrary rights and arbitrates them. In the US, the Congress has denied the authority to abridge speech. Well, the problem, I agree, and it seems to me that the way that political, the political, the court has operated in this case is that it has completely outsourced judgment to the regulatory board of psychologists, and effectively this makes turns them into judges, juries, and executioners, and that's a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. So one, one, one or two last ones from the last segment. Robert Longshaw, the metrics to use to measure an economy against countries should be family health and not GDP. Sure, I would prefer that we resist the instinct of making policy off of relative metric comparisons to other countries. I prefer if we had a more internal focus about how the people feel about their own lives, which is more difficult to quantify. And it seemed to work much to people's health far before we adopted this managerial mindset. Um, Arizona Desert Rat, degrowth, call it what it is, depopulation. Yes, in the way that they think about degrowth, it definitely is because they're going to rescind the amount of things you can have, which will cause deaths. I would like to think of a conservative case for the degrowth of the remit of consideration by market actors. There are certain things you just can't commodify, like the Adam Smith theory of moral sentiments thing, which I think we'll have to go through at some point. Oh, that'll be, definitely. That'd be really good. And, and one last one, Grant Gibson. Who hobs first? Yes, we've got that. We've got that on the slate, yeah. And, and then I'm doing Schmidt. Grant Gibson, tip from an economic demographer. Single year birth data after a major event, COVID lockdowns could be very misleading. Took a, take a look at the five-year rolling average. Yeah, Actually, the five-year rolling average has been continually going down. In 2021, it peaked up slightly, but it's immediately fallen back down. And the reason it's fallen back down is because of these adverse economic circumstances, which bring the birth rates down reliably. You can see this happening in Japan, South Korea, Germany, and Italy, all around the 1970s due to the oil shock. Go watch Stephen Shaw's documentary on that and my interview with him because he's very insightful. Anyway, um, we've got the gold tier Zoom call at 3.30 today. If you're an audio listener, that doesn't apply to you. Hello from the future. Um, thank you very much, Stelios. Pleasure as always. It was a brilliant exchange. Yep, my, my brain is now exhausted because Stelios is much smarter than I am. I, I have a lot of reading to do to catch up with the gentleman. But if you are not joining our gold tier Zoom call, uh, one, you're mad. Two, we will see you back again Monday, one o'clock live UK time with a special guest. Until then, take care and goodbye.